door. Good afternoon. Uh, for those of you that I've not met yet, my name's Aaron. I am part of the eldership team here at Grace Church. Now, I'm not one who likes to boast, but when I was about 14 years old, I once competed in the 400-meter race, running race, at school. And I not only competed, but I'm pretty proud to say that I won, which filled me with pride. I genuinely thought that I was the next coming of Michael Johnson. Um, Michael Johnson, for anyone under the age of 40, was a very good runner back in the 90s. So after the race, I was kind of looking around me, surveying these people that I'd beaten, and I was just thinking, you lot are, are useless. I was kind of going around giving them tips on how they could run faster, but I kind of knew that they would never reach my standard of running. Now, one of the rewards for winning school sports was I got to compete in town sports and compete against all the other schools in the area. And I was convinced if I can beat the kids at my school, and my school was the best school, then I'm definitely going to beat the losers from, from all the other schools around the town. That was until I got to the start line of the race. And I looked around me, and I kid you not, I was surrounded by 14-year-olds, each of whom were about six foot four and built like houses. I'm pretty sure there was some drug cheating going on, but I didn't, I di I didn't want to complain. So anyway, suffice to say, the starter pistol went, and we raced, and I can't remember exactly what position I finished in, but it was somewhere around last place. <laughs> this was a humbling experience because going into school sports, going into town sports, sorry, I thought I was good. I compared myself to the runners around me from my school, and I made the judgment, they are bad runners, but I won, so I am therefore a good runner. And this is similar to the situation that we can find ourselves in as we approach today's passage that Isadora has just read. Because last week, we read Romans chapter 1, or we read the end of Romans chapter 1. So I'm just going to recap the, the last verses that we read last week. So Romans chapter 1 from verse 28 and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we can, indeed we should look at this long, long list of characteristics such as maliciousness, murder, haters of God, inventors of evil. And we can agree that those who practice them are deserving of punishment. Because each of these activities that I've just listed are sin. 
And as we'll see in a few chapters' time, in Romans 6, we read that the wages of sin, or the consequences, the the punishment for sin, is death. And just as I looked around at my fellow competitors in school sports, it's possible for us to look around at the world today, maybe our neighbors, maybe some people we know, and we can feel pretty good when we compare ourselves to them. Because we try to be kind. We never intentionally go out of our way to hurt anyone. We go to church, so of course we figure that we can't be considered as haters of God. And we certainly don't sit around, as it says in verse 30, inventing acts of evil. And I think particularly many of the Jews in the church in Rome, when this had been written, would have felt like this. Because they would have lived their whole lives trying to follow the rules in what we call the Old Testament. It's possible that as they read this, as they read the end of of chapter 1, that they were thinking this must be referring to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This isn't about us. Because the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they would have come from backgrounds that didn't acknowledge God. But then we come to today's passage, to Romans 2, which would have brought them and also should bring us back down to earth with a bump. So let's read again chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you the judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And this passage begins with the word therefore, referring to the end of Romans chapter 1, that I just read. So again, I'm just going to read verse 32 again, just to remind us what that therefore is there for. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get of approval to those who practice them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is if you break the law, if you break God's law by sinning, then you deserve death. Therefore, if you are judging others, you show that you know God's law. So in doing so, actually you are condemning yourself as you too are guilty of sin. And also, by extension, you're deserving of the same penalty. And if we're judging others, then it's clear to see that we're failing to see this truth. Because one certain characteristic of our fallen natures, is we can so often see sin in other people, but we can very easily overlook our own sin and our own failings. It's a seed of gossip in many ways, isn't it? More than this, we can even be deceived into thinking that our condemnation of others' behaviors or or our disapproval of other people's sins can actually in some way lift us up 
above them in some kind of way as far as God is concerned. But here we see Paul in no uncertain terms refuting this way of thinking. And we'll see in the next chapter, Romans 3.23, for all have short and sorry, of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that we all, by our own merit, have the same standing before God. This means that none of us get to stand in God's place in the judgment of others, because in doing so, what we're doing is we are condemning ourselves as fallen sinners. Now, before moving on, it's worth addressing what Paul means and what he doesn't mean when he's talking about judgment. Because it begs the question, does that mean we should happily ignore it when our brothers or our sisters in church are going around and they are willfully and consistently sinning in certain ways? Or indeed, if we're sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, does that mean that we can't point out that some of the things they do are counted by God as sin for fear of being judged ourselves? Which, of course, when you think about it, doesn't make any sense. Because if somebody believes that they're without sin, then they also will believe that they're without the need of a savior. So if we can't tell people about their sin, then we've got no gospel to share. We also see in verse 28 of chapter 1 a clue where it says this, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is the list of, of characteristics of evil characteristics. Now, very definitely here, we see that we're to recognize sin and we're not to give approval of it. So judgment in this instance cannot mean that we're not to use our critical thinking skills when it comes to the sin of others. Indeed, Matthew chapter 18, where we read about church discipline, Jesus says how we should deal with sin in the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So I think there's some statements we can safely say. We're not judging someone when we're lovingly confronting them about their sin. It's not judging someone if we're seeking a brother or a sister's repentance. We're not judging someone if we're using discernment and giving words of admonishment. And of course, we're not judging someone when we're sharing with them the incredible power of the gospel over their sin. Why? Well, I think it's because when we do these things, what we're doing, we're doing them in order to bring glory to Jesus and to bring life and encouragement to the person that we're talking with. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, this, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if we are making discriminating and discerning judgments to this end, to fulfill the greatest commandments of loving God and loving people, then it is clear that this is not what Paul is referring to when he talks about judgment. What Paul must mean then when he talks about judgment in this passage is that we're not to pass harsh, harsh, adverse verdicts on others. We're to condemn nobody. Even if we consider that we're speaking the truth, it must always come out of a place of love. But when it comes to pronouncing final judgment, God alone is the judge. Okay, let's look back to the passage and we'll pick up from verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, this warning from Paul to his listeners, it couldn't be stronger. As I was preparing this sermon, the conviction that I felt was, was, was incredible. And hopefully the conviction that we feel as we read this and we think of the, the, the potential of us not getting this right is huge. If we're taking God's grace towards us in forgiving our sins... For granted, if we're doing that, and if we're not repenting, then actually it tells us here that we are not saved from his wrath. Now, the fact that Paul was writing this to the church in Rome, who in the previous chapter he had been lauding for their faith, is probably safe to suggest that this is something that we should be listening to collectively and individually as well, because the consequences of this could not be more grave. At the cross, Jesus displays his incredible grace, his mercy towards us, as he died and as he satisfies God's righteous wrath towards sin. And in doing so, he's displaying what we read here as his unfathomable riches of kindness, forbearance, and patience. And he continues to show us these things even after we put our faith in him, because we still continue to sin. But clearly, we see here that whilst we are still sinners, whilst we still sin, we are not to go on sinning unreservedly. This kindness, this forbearance, this patience that he shows should lead us into genuine repentance, which is not about feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not about feeling remorseful for the consequences of what we've done. But true repentance leads us into action. It turns us away from our sin, and it turns us towards Christ, in whom and only in whom we can find forgiveness and restoration. Now, the Greek word for repentance, I read this this week. I'm not one of those guys, by the way, who knows Greek words. But the Greek word for repentance 
is metanoia, which is derived from two other Greek words, meta and new. Now, meta means beyond or after, and new, new, I think, means mind. So in essence, metanoia means a change of mind or a second thought. And it was commonly used to describe a situation where a person had had regrets and wished they could go back in the situation and make a different choice. They recognized it was too late to make changes, but they still felt remorseful for their previous decisions. So repentance, it means wishing we could go back and changing our mindset. It means changing our fundamental outlook and attitudes on life. Ultimately, repentance means transforming the desires of our heart, which in turn leads to a recalibration of the whole orientation of our lives. Repentance isn't just saying sorry. Repentance should lead to action, turning away from our sin and turning towards Christ. Yes, of course, we will still sin, but we cannot presume upon God's kindness. By faith, we must actively be battling our sin. Because if we don't, as we read here, our hearts will become hard and we will receive the punishment for our actions, which is a punishment too great for any of us to bear. Only Jesus can bear it for us. Okay, let's turn back to the passage and see Paul expand on how God will judge us. Okay, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, I don't know about you, but this section for me raises some pretty fundamental questions. Because I think if you read just these verses in isolation, without, without context, the message seems pretty clear. If you're good and obedient, then you'll be rewarded with eternal life. But if you're unrighteous and self-seeking, then you will receive nothing but wrath and fury. And if we read these verses, like I say, in isolation, in isolation, then it would seem very strongly that what Paul is doing here is he's promoting a works-based salvation, as though it's dependent on what we do and not on what Jesus does. But a repeated theme that we see throughout all of Paul's letters, including this very letter to the Romans that we're reading, is that salvation comes by grace through faith alone. So just to give a few examples, Romans 3, 23 to 24, which I mentioned earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Another one, Galatians 2, verse 16, tells us this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I could go on giving examples, but the point that I'm trying to make is that the objective criteria for salvation is faith alone with nothing added. However, what we read here, I believe, is that the objective reality of that salvation is manifested in subsequent good works that the Holy Spirit leads and empowers believers to perform. For that reason, good deeds, as seen by God, are a perfectly valid uh, basis for God to make judgment. He doesn't separate the deeds from our heart postures towards him. He sees them together. Our beliefs, our faith in Jesus is demonstrated most clearly through what we do. What we believe, where we put our hope, will always drive our actions. It will always shape what we do. As Jesus twice declared in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruits. Our works, whilst not gaining salvation for us, are the unmistakable witness of our salvation. So when Paul writes this, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality who will give eternal life. But for those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What Paul is doing is essentially saying that if we truly have faith in Jesus, then this will be reflected in what we do. In other words, a clear indicator, a clear marker that we are saved is by faith, is by the work that we're doing, that we're doing God's work. Outward godly works are the evidence of inner faith. And just to reiterate, salvation is absolutely not received by works. All have sinned, all have fallen short. Jesus' sacrifice, and this is really important, his sacrifice at the cross was complete. It means our debt is paid in full. No amount of deeds that we do can add to or indeed remove the salvation purchased at the cross by Christ. But salvation will most certainly produce activity such that the presence of genuinely good deeds in a person's life reveal that he or she has been saved. Or the absence of deeds in a person's life would reveal the absence of salvation. And in both cases, what Paul is saying here is that deeds can, become, can be a trustworthy basis for God's judgment, but it is only God who can make this judgment because he and he alone knows whether our deeds are powered by a regenerated heart. And for me, when I consider this, when I was thinking about this, there were two huge questions that came up in my mind. The first one being, what if we're followers of Jesus, but we are aware that the motives behind our good deeds are mixed. Maybe we seek to bring glory in our actions, but a part of us 
is pleased that others will see what we're doing and applaud us for how kind and how godly we are. Does this mean, if we have mixed motives in the good deeds that we do, that our deeds are not powered by a regenerated heart? And the second question, I'll answer that in a minute, don't worry, I'm just going to leave that there. But the second question is, what about people that we know, and I'm sure we know many, who do not know Jesus, but are doing genuinely good deeds? We can all cite examples of people who have given time, money, their lives, in order to alleviate the suffering of others. How can this be possible if good deeds can only come from a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit? So dealing with these in order, first, what if, what does it mean if as followers of Jesus our motives are mixed? Can we truly say that this comes from a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Well, as we've seen, our salvation is a gift of grace received entirely by faith. And this has to be so, because by nature, we are sinners. And when we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are instantly justified. That is, we're declared instantly righteous by God. But we don't instantly become perfect. This is a process I'm sure many of you know, called sanctification, whereby we become more like Jesus as we walk closely with him. Now, Paul talks of this in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Let's just read that. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Even Paul still had sin. Even we still have sin. Sin, by its very nature, is pervasive. And it seeks to, to, to damage, to destroy every fiber of our being, particularly every fiber of our being that is trying to bring glory to Jesus. So it should come as no surprise that the motives behind what we do are going to be tainted by this sin, even when they proceed from a heart that is regenerate. Because our regeneration will only be perfected when we see Jesus face to face. And Paul actually teaches us in this passage how we should respond. Because it's easy when this happens for us to feel deflated, when we see our own sin, when we see it rearing its ugly head, even particularly when we're trying to serve God. It, it makes us feel wretched. And we can ask the question, how can I possibly be a believer when I feel pride at the way someone has complimented me when I'm trying to bring glory to God? How can that possibly sit together? And it's at moments like this that we need to see and we need to experience God's grace. And we do this, as Paul says here, by forgetting what's past and by focusing on the prize, Jesus. 
Don't dwell on the sin because that gives it power and distracts us from the good works that God has prepared for us. Rather, recognize the sin. Don't minimize it. Recognize it. See how deadly it is. Then repent. Then see Jesus. Understand what he did at the cross. The great price that he has paid to put our sin to death. Receive grace. And as Paul says, keep pressing on. This brings glory to Jesus. So what about the second question that I raised? What about the many, many people that we will all know that are doing great things, like I say, alleviating poverty, doing charity work, even people maybe that we know that we work with who are just kind, they're just nice people. They're having a positive impact every day wherever they go. Well, if we look at the passage closely, let's see what it says. Because it says that this is not enough for good works to be counted as righteousness. Let's read verses 6 and eight, six to 8 again. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For the things that we are doing to be classified as good works in the eyes of God, it says here that they need to be seeking glory and honor and immortality. Now, all good things by nature produce glory. My wife, Natasha, this morning, she went out kayaking and she came home and she showed me a photo that she'd taken, this kind of beautiful photo of the scene that she'd seen by the water. And we do that, don't we? When we see a beautiful sunset or kind of something in nature by, by something in us that wants to, to praise it. And in doing so, what we're doing is we're bringing additional glory to that thing. And as the creator of everything, everything that is good, ultimately, all that glory is due to Jesus. So any works that are done, no matter how good the immediate outcome, if the doer of those works does not recognize that ultimately they came from God, then effectively what they're doing is stealing glory from Jesus. Which equally, of course, means that these things cannot be counted truly as honorable, nor can they lead to immortality, because immortality is a gift from the one that that person is denying. So the measurement used to determine whether something is righteous in the eyes of God is not based on what we can see, which is how we would often seek to determine these things, but rather it's based on whether it's intended to bring glory to Jesus, because Jesus is worthy of all glory, which can only happen when it comes from a regenerated heart. Does that make sense? I'm seeing some nods, okay. Okay, let's turn back to the passage and we'll read the last few verses, verses 9 to 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, so here Paul is restating, he's, he's re-emphasizing the consequences of being found in Jesus or not being found in Jesus. So for those considered evil, that is those from verse 8, 
that are considered as self-serving and not giving glory to God. It tells us there will be tribulation and distress. And for those who do good, that is those from verse 7 that seek glory and honor and immortality. It says here there will be glory and honor and peace, which I don't think is a coincidence. In other words, what it's saying here is that God will give them everything that they seek. And Paul states here twice, this is for the Jew first and then the Greek with no partiality. Yes, God first came to the Jews in the Old Testament, but this gift of salvation is now open to all. And this, of course, was emphasized to the Jews in the church at Rome so that they understood that they had no special privilege on the basis of their heritage. But rather, what he's saying, what he's restating here, is that all are judged equally, based entirely on whether we have put our faith in our Lord Jesus, sorry, as Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. And this is evidenced in our actions, as we've read, which I think moves us nicely into how we can apply this passage. Your salvation, my salvation, does not rest on whether your parents or your spouse or even your closest friends are Christians. Your salvation does not rest on whether you attend church or whether you go to home group. Your salvation, my salvation, does not rest on the number of things that you do for other people, no matter how nice you are. Our salvation rests on Christ and on Christ alone. So we need to consider, we should ask ourselves, am I trusting Jesus? Do my deeds display this, albeit imperfectly? Is my heart seeking after him? Am I actively battling sin? And if your answer to any of these questions this afternoon is no, then you need to see that God's kindness, forbearance, and patience should lead us into repentance. That is, we need to meditate on Scripture, on Scripture such as this, such that we see our great need for a Savior. We recognize the devastation of sin, and we comprehend the uncomprehendable cost that Jesus paid to be that Savior. And we need to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would reveal the extent of these truths to us. And then as we've read this morning, we need to repent and we need to believe. And know this, he is just and he is faithful to forgive us because of the completed work of Christ at the cross. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness towards us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are just to forgive us of our sin. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us into the presence of the Father. And I pray this morning, Lord, for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and comprehend these deep truths, Lord. For any of us that are mired in a sin battle, Lord, help us again to see the truth of your face. Any of us, Lord, who are walking closely with you, help us to see the truth of what you have done for us, Lord. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would again open our eyes to see more clearly 
the incredible scandal, but the incredible generosity that is your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name.